We're continuing our series this morning about healing, a series entitled The God Who Heals. And today, I would like to preach from the subject, God Heals Our Debts. God Heals Our Debts. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I have preached in my home church three times in my life. I was raised at First United Methodist Church in Dothan, Alabama. And in preparation for each, I could not help but recall the gospel story we just read. I'm sure all preachers, when they travel to their home church, have some apprehension about preaching before the people around whom they grew up, the people who knew them from a young age, the people who knew what they were like in middle school who knew the mistakes maybe they made before they had matured in years, if they had even done so. Thankfully, though, I never quite had the experience Jesus had when he preached before his hometown. No, when Jesus went to preach before his hometown, he had a very different experience than I and probably most preachers have. No one was furious with me for my words. No one tried to run me out of town, and nobody tried to throw me off a cliff. But that is, in fact, what happened to Jesus right after the story we just read this morning. No, when I preached in my home church, I received gracious thanks and kind words, affirmation. People told me how proud they were. People told me how surprised they were. That I, I don't know if that was a compliment or not. But they told me they hoped I would come back one day. Jesus did not get asked to come back one day. The reason why my experience and most preachers' experiences were very different from Jesus's in his hometown is because Jesus said on this occasion two things that were true on that day that had not been true before. And so the people had a hard time reconciling what he was saying. Jesus told the people of his hometown that on that day, the Son of Man was fulfilling the words of the prophet Isaiah and that he was that person. And he also told them that God's healing is for even those who are outside of their tribe. And those two things did not sit well. Because you see, when Jesus and his family went to the synagogue on this Sabbath day, it was customary at every worship gathering for the rabbi to pick a male out of the congregation to read the scripture. Jesus was home, and so the rabbi thought it was appropriate to choose Jesus. They get to choose whatever selection they would like to read, and so he received the text, the scroll from Isaiah, and he doesn't just choose at random. He doesn't twist the scroll and just stop at some haphazard place. No, he knew what he wanted to read, and he knew what he wanted to say. And what's interesting about Luke's version of this story compared to the other Gospels is where he places this story within the larger narrative of the Gospel. Both Mark and Matthew's gospel, they, they have this story much later in Jesus' life, halfway through the gospel, even towards the end of their story. And in their telling of this encounter, they don't provide very many details about what happens. But Luke sees this story as the table setter, where Matthew simply says, Jesus taught at the temple. Luke tells us what he taught and what he said. He tells us this story with fine detail so that the readers of this gospel might realize 
who Jesus is and what he has come to do. The reason this story is at the beginning of Luke is because to Luke, this is Jesus's mission statement. It's his chance to declare the purpose for his presence. He is summarizing briefly why he is here and why people should listen to him. He quotes the prophet Isaiah and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. I've been appointed and anointed to come and proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord. This prophecy of Isaiah was hundreds of years old. It had been read thousands of times and never before had it been fulfilled until this day. This prophecy was meant to describe a Messiah, someone who would come and be the son of man and restore God's kingdom. And Jesus reads this text and says, I'm that guy. I'm the person you've been waiting for. I'm the person you've been reading about. He's saying, I'm the son of man and that the spirit of the Lord has sent me to proclaim good news to the poor. Freedom and recovery the year of the Lord. And Jesus makes sure to include the Isaiah part where he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord. It's not a phrase that is just added in as some nice addition. It's a very deliberate phrase with great meaning because the year of the Lord is also known as the year of Jubilee. Perhaps you've heard of this Jewish practice. Every 50 years, the Jubilee was supposed to set all debts free. In the year of Jubilee, you would not plant your fields anymore. You would let them lay fallow and you would let the land restore itself for a whole year. And anybody who had any debts was supposed to have them wiped out and forgiven. Every 50 years, people were supposed to be set free from the burdens that had been placed on them. Now, many biblical scholars will say that although the year the Lord was written about and Jubilee was talked about in the Old Testament, it more than likely was never really practiced. There's very little evidence to suggest that the Jubilee ever took place, that people were forgiven of their debts, just wiped clean. There's very little to suggest that a farmer would not plant crops for a whole year. So when Jesus says this and reads this text from Isaiah, he is sure to include it because he is saying, I can actually make this happen. I can bring the year of the Lord. Luke is telling us this story and this location with this detail so that we know Christ is the son of man. And just a few verses later, he explains how Jesus was not just there for the Jewish people, but for all people. Luke cares a lot about making sure that Jesus is there for the outsiders as well as the insiders. He places a surprising emphasis on this reality of Christ's identity to care for all people. Jesus cares about healing those that we have not thought about or that we have not thought need healing. The Messiah was sent by God to comfort those who are poor, the the less than, the least, all who are broken. And one of the foundational points of this series over the past couple weeks and what you'll hear more and more is that we're all broken. That at some point in each of our lives, we have needed healing. Maybe it's physical healing or relational healing, spiritual healing, emotional healing. We all need something. And sometimes it's hard to even speak out loud. But not everybody here is looking for the same thing. 
Christ came to give healing to all people. And one of the incredible things about the healing ministry of Jesus are the things that Jesus chooses to heal. Jesus wants our entire lives to be healed. We said a moment ago, he helps us to realize that we should care about the people that we often do not think about. But it's true that Jesus also cares about healing the things that we don't expect that Jesus should care about. Every part of our lives, God cares about. Our hurts, our habits, our hangups, our relationships, our ailments, and even the ordinary everyday things like our finances. I mean, that's what we mean most often when we talk about indebtedness, right? If God wants to free us from our debts, that means God wants to heal our relationship to money. Financial fears and insecurities are one of the greatest sources of anxiety in the world. Mortgages, car payments, school tuition, students loans, these make up the majority of our non-disposable income payments that we make each month. And those are just a few of the things that cause us to find ourselves in financial distress. But the good news is that God cares even about those things. God wants to heal these as well. God wants to help us live a life free of fear and stress, and particularly even those that come from financial debt. A fear that's very real for many people. However, this freedom that God wants to offer is not one where you pray some magic prayer and all your debts are just forgiven. This is not some magic bullet that just, where a divine inheritance falls from the sky. It's, a, it's more like a restoration of a relationship. The relationship with how we spend our money, how we plan our budget, what we choose to buy, and how we choose to give and live. It also means that even if we're not a person who lives with fears and anxiety of financial insecurity, we might still need healing of our relationship with our finances. We too might need to have our relationships to money rethought, helped out, made whole. Some of us are not worried about money in such a dire way that we have the ability to spend freely, which often leads us to making frivolous purchases, to not considering how we are using what God has given us in the best ways or how to bless others. The fear and anxiety of our finances and the person who spends without fault, these are both things that are a symptom of our brokenness. They are a reflection of our need for God's healing. And even if it might not seem like the most exciting and miraculous thing compared to some of the other ways we talk about healing, this is still something God cares very much about. And I invite you to remember the story we read in our first week of this series just a few weeks ago about the, the man who was on the mat. There are times when we cannot do anything for ourselves, where we are laying on the mat in need of help in need of healing. And there are other times where we are the friend or the person helping carry the mat for others. Remember, God wants to use us to help heal this world. And as we consider the healing of debt, we have a really wonderful example in our church right now that bears witness to what this means. In addition to student loan and housing and automobile debt, one of the most severe forms and crippling forms of debt that people face in our country is medical debt. In every state, people are crushed under the weight of healthcare costs that they cannot afford to pay. 
More than 60% of bankruptcies in America have medical debt as the root cause. As we, are fi- as we find out from a company called RIP Medical Debt. You see, there's a small group in our church that was recently moved by this cause and felt led to help be the healing hand of Jesus in the lives of strangers. This company, RIP Medical Debt, buys up debt from hospitals, insurance companies, collections agencies, and in turn, forgives the person who holds the debt. They buy the debt from the company so they can pay it off and lets the person free of their indebtedness. And what's even more incredible about these insurance companies and these groups that are desperate to recoup some of their money, some of their losses, some of these unpaid medical bills, is that they will allow these organizations to purchase this debt at an extreme discount. $10,000 given to RIP medical debt can purchase $1 million of debt, which is then in turn forgiven. To those that have their debt forgiven, this is a miracle. It is a miracle offered by the healing hand of Jesus Christ. And to those who participate in this ministry, they're carrying a mat for somebody in need. We've all been so moved by the works of this ministry that, and the participation of this small group in our church that we decided we're going to challenge our entire congregation. That during the season of Lent, we all should participate in this work. You'll hear more about this soon, but the basics are this. We essentially, we're going to ask you to give up something for Lent like you normally do, but we want it to be something you purchase. Maybe it's your, a cup of coffee each day. Maybe it's all the coffee throughout Lent. Good luck. Maybe it's a meal out. Maybe it's soda or alcohol. Maybe it's your subscription to Netflix for that six-week period. Whatever it might be, I don't know. But make it be something you can purchase so that you can use that money to join the rest of the congregation in helping being the healing hand of Jesus Christ. That we can bring that money together and give towards helping set people free from their debts, healing people of their needs. The other cool thing about this RIP medical debt group is that they can purchase debt from our very area so that we are healing and helping our own neighbors. The person who lives next door to you might be the, the, benefit, the beneficiary and the recipient of your generosity and of your work helping carry a mat. We'll talk about this again, but I wanted to go ahead and put the idea in your mind so you can begin praying about how you want to join in God's work in this way. Because at the end of the day, we all know we are indebted in some way. For some of us, it's financial debt. But maybe it's debts of other kinds. And we are all in need of the relief that God can provide, the healing that only Christ can do to make us whole. And so, as we are about to affirm in just a few minutes as we come to take communion, we do believe that God has set us free. God has set us free from our debts, free from slavery to sin and death, free from the guilt caused by the mistakes that we've made. God has released us from the crushing weight of fears and insecurities because of our traps. The good news, the good news of the gospel is that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, and that proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. And we say glory to God about that. 
And as we end this sermon this morning, as we prepare to come to the table, this whole idea of forgiveness and freedom from debt, it reminds me of Victor Hugo's book and the later titled Broadway play, Les Miserables. In the beginning of Les Mis, the character Jean Valjean is out of prison on bail. He spent 19 years in prison for stealing just a, a handful of bread. And while he was out on bail, he finds himself staying the night at a parsonage of a local priest. The clergyman welcomes him in because he can tell the man is tired and alone and it's cold outside. And he says, we have our share of wine and bread. We have a bed for you. And Jean Valjean sits and eats. And as he does, he realizes that the silver in his hand costs twice what he earned his entire time in prison. And so when the priest retired to bed, Jean Valjean notes to himself that he did well and played the part of an appreciative recipient of this old fool's kindness. And then in the middle of the night, he got up and packed some of the silver from the dinner table and he took off. But right after he fled, he was caught by some patrolling policemen in the middle of the night and they wondered, how could such a man have come by such fine silver? Valjean tells the officers that he was staying with the reverend as his guest, and the priest gave him this silver as a present because he took pity on his plight. And so the police, they take Jean Valjean back to the parsonage, and they retell this story to the priest, and he says, yes, that's exactly how it happened. The priest vouches for him, even to the thief's surprise, knowing that none of the, true, the story is true. And to top it all off, he brings Valjean some very expensive candlesticks, which are worth more than all that he stole. He shows this incredible kindness and forgiveness and generosity. And in the theatrical version of the story, once the officers leave, the priest says this to Valjean. Remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness, and I have bought your soul for God. We recognize when we think of freedom, it is not always as the rest of the world sees it. Freedom means something different when we as Christians speak it into existence for our own lives. For us, it's not just what happens when you are freed from school for the summer so you can go home and eat Oreos and play video games and sleep in. It's not like being freed from your mortgage so you can buy whatever you want. Our soldiers give us freedom so we are able to live in a country that allows us to speak our mind, have a non-state sponsored press, vote for whoever we want. These are all wonderful. And these are celebrations, are freedoms that we should celebrate. We are lucky to enjoy. But when we say we are free as Christians, we are like John Valjean. We declare that Christ has set us free from slavery to sin and death, from our debts, and Christ has set us free for joyful obedience. When we receive our freedom, we use that freedom to bind ourselves all over again. But we bind ourselves to Jesus Christ, the one who has forgiven our debts. We owe our lives the one who has offered us mercy and generosity. We put on his yoke. But the other good news is that when we bind ourselves to Jesus and we put on the yoke of Jesus Christ, what we find is true freedom. What we find is the gift that this yoke is easy 
and light. And that the experience of a life with Jesus Christ is better than any choices we can make with our own freedom for some other experiences. The best that we can hope for is to be bound to the one true God. The true eternal life, the everlasting life that comes from being freed from the weight of sin and death is when we know that we are healed and that we use that freedom for joyful obedience. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.